heart's pumping, y'all. I am, I am ready to go. Uh, tonight's vision night for Red Hill. Uh, I think a lot of you are going to be there. And uh, the elders and I, we've been working on this for about probably two years now, it feels like. Um, it's hard to get a meeting sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like it's hard, it can get, it can get tough to get a meeting sometimes. And um, I've been like pretty focused on this for our church since our overseers came in. Some of you don't know how Red Hill operates, but every two years we have a small group of men who are pastors uh, and church planters come in and do a full evaluation of me and my leadership. And those three men come in uh, and they serve as coaches for me ongoing, but every two years we bring them in and they get to interview the elders and my wife and our staff and they meet with leaders and members of our church. And then after doing all that and asking a lot of probing questions, all centered around like, how am I doing? It's, it's for me to be a healthy leader and for our church to be a healthy leader. How am I doing? How's the church doing? We got this really glowing report. Everything, we have a great church. It's unified. Everybody loves each other and seems for the most part to enjoy being part of our church family and is eager for what God has ahead of us. They said, but we think that there's like one thing in you, in me, that you really need to face off with. And I've told several stories along the planting journey of what it was like for Sarah and I and our family at our previous church. And for those of you who've missed all those stories, I'll just sum it all up by saying it's really difficult uh, for us personally. It was a really difficult experience. It was a, like a replanting, a revitalizing kind of work. And um, the church is the, is the body that has the life-giving hope, love, joy, peace, and presence of Jesus. And if the church, the local church, is a dying church, it's not because it doesn't have those things. It's not because it doesn't have the message. Something else is going on. Something toxic usually is going on. And that was the case in the church that we went into. And it was four years and it was, um, it was just really difficult. It was, there was a lot of pain. There was uh, a lot of extremely, exceedingly hard things. And in the end, um, God did some great things. We got to see a church turn around. We got to see a whole new set of bylaws put in place. And the last year that we were there, the church experienced tremendous explosive growth from 125 people to 450 people. We put $150,000 in the bank. I was the only staff member at the church. We had a part-time secretary who worked for me. But beyond that, it was me pastoring 450 people. Those of you who know anything about my administrative capacities know that that was a total nightmare for pretty much everyone involved. Um, and... Uh, um, what ended up happening was that we had uh, two elders that still remained on staff, uh, not on staff, but as part of the leadership of the church. And um, a couple of years after these events took place, one of them met with me and had uh, a legal pad where he had written 10 pages of things that he wanted to apologize for. Um, and... Um, I don't want to overshare. I don't want to undershare. I just want to say that last year, which from anybody observing from the outside would look like the greatest year of a pastor's life for us was one of the hardest um, and most painful and most exhausting and most dangerous years of life. 
And the overseers came in, met with me, had talked to a bunch of our people, leaders, elders, my wife, family, as I said. And they said, you know, we think emotionally you've done the work to recover from this. Like as a person, as a human being, you've done the work to recover from this. I've been in counseling. I'm a big advocate of counseling. If you're struggling and you don't know how to feel about something or even what to do about something, get some counseling from a trained professional Christian counselor who can help you navigate complex emotions, complex circumstances, and complex relationships. It was a huge benefit and blessing to me. And even if you don't feel comfortable talking to a counselor, talk to a pastor or a trusted Christian friend, share the burden with somebody else. That's what I did. I worked through a lot of the emotions about it, um, worked, like faced some difficult things about myself and the way that I process relationships and responsibility and things like that. Um, but the overseer said, we think that um, maybe you haven't recovered all the way as a leader because we think that the church is like primed and ready for you to say, let's go. And you don't seem to be doing that. And uh, like as they were talking and even as I'm talking with you right now, I, I was sitting there and I was like, um, just like ready to start crying. Like just, just felt like I'm just, I just, I don't know what else to do. I'm just gonna start crying. And I'm not a big crier, you know, um, but sometimes I do cry and I'm not ashamed to do it or afraid to do it. Just doesn't happen all that often for me. But as they were saying that, they were saying the church is ready. I was saying in myself, because they said, you know, at, at my previous church, it was, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan of how we're going to do it. Here's how long it's going to take. Here's every single step that we're going to take to get there. And that's exactly what we did. And we got there at great personal cost to me and my family. And uh, they said, maybe somewhere between that and where you are right now is the leader that God designed you to be. And uh, so I, I had to face off again, once again, with my own self and a complex set of emotions and pains that exist inside of me. I say all that not to say like pity me, but to say it's important to remember for all of us, we're all a complex set of emotions and circumstances. We all got to the exact spot that we're in right now, honestly. And by that, I mean the person that you are right now is someone who's trying to do the best that they can in every facet of their life. And in some more than others, feeling the pain of struggle. So getting to what we're gonna get to tonight, like getting to what's God asked our church to be, who's God invited us to be, who's he called us to be. I can tell you, I know the things that I'm supposed to say. Like I know the things, I understand how to cast a vision. I understand how to sell things. I understand how to convince people of things. I understand how to persuade people of things. I understand how to get people excited about things and engage the emotions and sis boom ba and rah, rah, rah. And in the end, what I came to was I came to this like one single question of what do I hope Red Hill becomes? What do what do I hope that it's like? What do, what do I, like, what's God put inside of me that I'm just going like, if I'm just dreaming about it and saying, where would I wanna spend my life? Like where, cause we're all spending our lives. What kind of a place would I say, I just wanna stay there forever. I wanna be with these people forever. I wanna engage in this mission together forever. And that question really was the origin story, I guess, for what we're going to unpack tonight and a little bit of what I'm going to share this morning. We're in Mark chapter 8. 
This story takes place in Matthew and Luke as well, and we're going to look a little bit at the Matthew passage. But today, this morning, I'm going to like just unpack, because the truth is like the vision frame and the stuff that we're going to unpack tonight, we're going to move so fast through it. And it's just going to cause a lot of, like, hopefully, a lot of questions like, well, what about this? And what about this? And like, that's the idea, is that it would generate some thought and some excitement and some wonder, and also maybe a little bit of tension. Like, I, I, we're not there and how do we get there? And I don't know if we can get there. Um, I wanna tell you this right out of the gate. There's not a number attached to anything in my mind as far as like the vision is not to grow to a certain size. Jesus's job is to build the church. It's not my job and it's not your job. That's his job. He promised he would do it. And I'm deeply persuaded and deeply convinced that healthy things grow to the right size in the right season. I've been a part of big churches and I've been a part of small churches. And we started the church. When we started, it was five people and two dogs. That's what, you know, that's how we got it going. And so I'm, I, I like small churches because of the friendship and the intimacy that's involved. I like big churches because of the influence and the impact that can be exerted. And um, most of all, what I care about most of all is that all of us are conformed into the image of Jesus and that we're doing it together. That's what I care about most of all. Because I think if we're on that path, everything else will just take care of itself. Um, we'll be able to love and forgive each other along the way because that's what Jesus does for us. And we're looking more and more like Jesus every day. We'll be able to reach our neighbors with the gospel. We'll be able to live courageously. We'll be able to enjoy ourselves because that's what Jesus did. And his goal for us is that we would look more like him. So it doesn't seem like we should have a different goal than that. And we're not going to. Um, sometimes we're gonna use some different words, but that's where we're always pointing to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to be conformed as a church into the image of Jesus, and then to go out and to live that out. In Mark chapter eight, Jesus has this great moment with his disciples. The Matthew passage is a little bit more famous in Matthew 16. And like I said, we're gonna look a little bit at that because the different gospel accounts give different insights and different details about the same stories. It says in verse 27, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? I think it's important for you to know a little bit about the geography, a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. Those of you who like history and geography, get ready to nerd out because this part's just for you. The rest of you, just take a mental break and think about what you're gonna have for lunch. You can check back in in just a moment. I'll give you a heads up. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Galilee. It was north of the Sea of Galilee. It was on the Syrian and uh, Israeli border. And it was a center of pagan worship for centuries, dating back into the Old Testament even. Uh, in this time, Caesarea Philippi was the central place where the, the Greek god Pan was worshiped. And Pan was this half man, half goat um, deity who played the flute. And he was the god of fear. It's where the word panic comes from, from the god Pan. Uh, the Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi ha had, this, had this cave. It was a central feature. And out of that cave flowed these springs. And this, this one giant spring flowed out of the cave. And it was the largest source of the Jordan River flowing out of this cave. And it was believed that the gods and goddesses that were worshiped in Greece, in ancient Greece, that in the winter time, they would go through that cave to the underworld. So that's, that's, they would spend their winters not on earth. It's the only thing about idols that makes any sense at all to me. It's the only reason that you go like, okay, they, that, now that, 
sounds like a good idea because it's cold outside and only crazy people really love that. So if you're here and you love that, well, you should feel right at home because most of us are pretty crazy. So the God Pan is worshiped there. Not only is he worshiped there, but all kinds of deviant types of pagan worship take place there. They would make sacrifices all the way up to child sacrifice and they would throw them into the cave because it was believed that that was the gateway to the underworld. That was the gate to Hades, was inside of that cave. All kinds of depraved acts would take place, including bestiality with goats and all other manner of wild, sinful, awful things took place there. It was probably more than you and I are capable of stomaching. It was widely known to be the most evil, sinful, not religious in a God-honoring way place that existed on the face of the planet. And Jesus, when he wants to reveal who he is, and when he wants to use for the first time the word church, and when he wants to say, I'm gonna build my church, and when he wants to disclose to the disciples that he himself, in fact, is the Messiah, takes his disciples to this location, to this place of total depravity, this place of total sin. In Matthew 16 um, and verse 18, this verse isn't in the Mark account, but I want us to hear it. He says, after Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades won't have any power over the church that I am establishing. So I, I ask myself, why would Jesus take his disciples to this place for these purposes? Like, you're gonna disclose that you're starting the church, that you're going to build it, you're going to establish it. You, in fact, are the Messiah because in the Jewish mind, this is the worst place on earth. So why would a religious leader choose to go, uh, choose to, go to the most non-religious place for a moment like this? Why not go to the temple in Jerusalem? Like just thinking about it as a vision caster, thinking about it as somebody who's trying to sell something, as somebody who's trying to persuade people about something. Why not go to the temple? Or why not go to Mount Sinai? There'd be like some really like kind of poetic beauty in that. This is where Moses received the 10 commandments. God meets Moses on Mount Sinai. Why not go to Mount Sinai? And then when John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, you could like tie all that in because it's a really holy place, God's mountain. So why not go to the Mount of Olives? There'd be like some literary unity in that. That's where Jesus goes, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he's gonna be, you know, the last moments of his life when Judas betrays him is there? Why not go there to disclose it? Why go to this place? And the answer I think is found in verses 27 through 30 of this. Verse 27, we already read. He says, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach. It's Mashiach, which means anointed one. And it's important to know that anointing was a way to set apart someone or something for God's special purpose. So something would be anointed with oil and that meant that that now belongs to God. 
God can use that and do with that whatever he wants to. It's something or someone set apart for God's special purpose. The Greek equivalent of Mashiach is Christos. So in the Bible, we see Jesus and he's called Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like Raiden Hollis. It wasn't like Jesus Christ. When he's filling out his FAFSA to try to get into college, it's not like he put his last name as Christ. It was his title. It's like when someone calls me Pastor Raiden. In Greek, they say Jesus Christ. And what they meant was Jesus Christos, Jesus Mashiach. You are the Messiah. You're the Savior. Jesus, in this way, is being designated as the Messiah, it, it means the savior that's appointed by God. The one appointed by God to save us. That's what Christos actually means. So Jesus affirms his declaration. You're the Messiah. In Matthew 16, it says, you're right. It was revealed to you by God. And on that testimony, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. There's this saying um, that when the game is on the line, great players want the ball in their hands. Like if the game is on the, like give me the rock. I want the ball in my hands. Whenever I was wrestling in high school, I wanted my opponent to be the best they'd ever been. When they stepped on the mat with me, I wanted them to be the best they'd ever been so that when I beat them, they would know I was just better than them. There's nothing they could do about it. I was just better than them. And the thing is that there were plenty of guys who stepped on the mat and were maybe not even the best they'd ever been and still beat me. But I was, I, it, what I lacked in skill, I more than made up for in overconfidence and bravado. You know what I'm saying? Like I, when I'm stepping out there, I want the ball in my hands. If something's happening at Red Hill and somebody has to get up and say something about it, I want the music stand. I want the platform, I want the micro, I want the ball in my hands. And I think that's why Jesus took his disciples to this place. Because I think Jesus is clutch. I think he's a game time player. I think he's a pressure player. I think he wants the enemy at full strength. And I think he wants the ball in his hands. Because the Messiah has come to destroy sin, to give new resurrected life to sinful people. It's so misunderstood, even by us today, it's so misunderstood because we commit what we think is a grievous, terrible sin, and it is. And we go, I don't know if I can confess it. I don't want Jesus to have to be the one who does something about it. I don't want to have done it. I don't want to be the person that I am. Jesus, when he's disclosing who he is and what his church will become and that it, that it will become, he takes his disciples to the most sinful place on earth and says, who am I? You're the Messiah. You're the capable one. Jesus wants the ball in his hands. He wasn't afraid and he wasn't ashamed and he was willing to take the fight into enemy territory. The deepest, darkest places of your life the things that you hope nobody ever finds out about, the things that you are too afraid to tell a living, breathing soul, the things that you're too afraid to even talk to God about, the stuff that's going on and the stuff that has happened in your past that you wish wasn't true about you and you don't know what to do about it. Jesus went to the darkest place on earth to tell us 
that he wants the ball in his hands. When it comes time, when it's game time, when it's pressure time, when it looks like the enemy is more powerful than anything or anyone you ever could have imagined, when it looks like defeat is a lock, when it looks hopeless, he wants the ball in his hands. He wasn't afraid and he wasn't ashamed. This is the good news. This is why the gospel is good news. If Jesus had gone to the temple, we would have probably thought that the Messiah was for people that were pretty close. If he had gone to Mount Sinai, maybe we would have thought that it was only for people like Moses who were holy. He didn't go to those places. He went to the most sinful place on earth because he came for sinners like me and like you. In verses 31 through 33, it says, he began to teach them. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) This is Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Jesus isn't hiding what's going to happen to him. He's speaking openly about it. And thankfully, you are not like Peter at all, right? I'm not like Peter at all, where we sort of like put our arm around Jesus and we're like, listen, we're going to have to talk about something. I don't think you know what you're doing. I'm not sure you understand what you're saying. You're openly saying you have to be rejected by the religious leaders of the day, that you're gonna be killed. And that three days later, you're going to be resurrected. And the thing is, is that that's just crazy. And we're never gonna let that happen to you. We're gonna defend you. We're gonna protect you. We'll hide you if we have to. We're going to keep you safe, Jesus. We're gonna keep you safe. So I... I know sometimes you get confused about things, you know, like we would never believe that Jesus didn't really know what he was doing in our lives. We would never believe that Jesus had a plan that ran contrary to our plans. We would never believe that Jesus would lead us into a place of sacrifice or suffering or hardship or poverty or loneliness or discouragement or despair or difficulty. Because as we all know, Jesus came that he might have an easy life and that we in turn might be like him having an easy life. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, this is not the prosperity gospel that I want to believe in. What I want to believe in is that everything will always be okay. We will never be uncomfortable. We will never be harmed. Instead of self-sacrifice, Jesus, maybe you could talk a little bit more about self-help. Instead of teaching about laying down our lives, maybe you could tell us how you're going to make our lives better. And the response of Jesus, who has just said to Peter, you're blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. This wasn't revealed to you by man, but by my father who's in heaven. God in heaven jumped off the top turnbuckle and just delivered a truth bomb right into Peter's heart that Jesus is the Messiah. That's how it happens. That's how you became a follower of Jesus. God disclosed that truth to you and you believed it. Nobody talked you into it. 
Nobody can talk you out of it. You didn't earn your way into it and you can't sin your way out of it. God reveals it. Salvation's a gift, not of works. Nobody gets to brag about it. And then Simon's like, Simon Peter's like, we're never gonna let that happen to you. And Jesus says, you need to get behind me because you're Satan. You're, the, you're literally the devil. You, you are on his team when you say something like that. And you're thinking about your own concerns, not what God wants. That's such a tough line. If we just stop for a moment and think about the rhythms of our life and ask ourselves, what are we primarily concerned about? What consumes our anxious thoughts? What fills up the dead spaces in our schedule? What do we wonder about? What do we hope for? What are we interested in? What makes us worry? Jesus says, you're thinking about human concerns, not thinking about what God is concerned about. We have in our vision frame a thing called the missional mandate. The missional mandate tries to answer this like one central question. What's the church supposed to be doing? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? What does it really boil down to? What are we supposed to be, what's the true North Star? What's the one principle that guides all the other principles? What's the one thing that determines all the other things? And our old vision frame, our missional mandate said that, now every church has the same mission. I wanna be really clear. Glorify God and make disciples. That's every church's mission. Every church that believes the Bible, that believes in salvation, that believes that Jesus died for sinners, that wants people to go to heaven, they have the same exact mission. Glorify God, make disciples. But if you visit this church versus another church versus another church versus another church, they're all going about that in different ways. And the reason is because they all look a little bit different. They're made up of different people. If we have a dunk contest, you and I, it's gonna look different for each of us because some of you can dunk without the aid of a trampoline or flubber attached to the bottom of your shoes. I'm gonna need a trampoline or flubber or some sort of a giant boost. Like I'm gonna need some, it's gonna look different for me to try to dunk a ball and really funny for me to try to dunk a ball than it is for some of you to try to do that. Everything that we try to do will look a little bit different. Even if we're trying to do the same thing, it'll look a little bit different because we're a little bit different. So the question is not glorify God, make disciples. That's an established fact. Glorify God and make disciples. The missional mandate, the true North Star for us is filled in after that with the word by. Glorify God and make disciples by. And what we used to say was, enjoying real life in the real Jesus together. It's really beautiful. And for the most part, we're pretty good at that. Like we enjoy being together. We like each other for the most part. Some of you are like, well, I don't like that person over there. But that's okay. There's somebody somewhere else that doesn't like you very much. So it evens out in the end because generally speaking, we're pretty good at enjoying each other and we're pretty good at enjoying the life that God has given us. We've done that for the most part. The problem with that is you can do that with a cold drink and a fire pit. You can enjoy real life and the real Jesus together and not ever have to do anything that resembles standing for Jesus, risking for Jesus, sharing your faith with someone else, 
So we've revamped that, and here's what it's gonna be. This is, some of you aren't gonna be at Vision Night. Some of you who are gonna be at Vision Night are like, why did I sign up for Vision Night if you're telling me this? Because we're gonna tell you other stuff too, and I gotta conserve some time somewhere, right? Because I got a lot to say, so I'm, I'm truncating some of what I can say tonight by saying it to you this morning. It's this, sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. That's what we wanna do. That's the true North Star for Red Hill Church, sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Because the mission that we have is a shared mission. Never in the history of humanity has God said to a follower of Jesus, go do it by yourself. Not ever. In fact, when talking about humanity, one of the first things that God said was, that's really not good for them to be alone. If we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it together. There's a couple of verses that go with it. First Thessalonians 2.8, Paul says basically, you were so dear to us that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but also our very lives. And Amos 3.3 says, unless two be agreed, how can they walk together? You're never gonna fulfill your calling alone. That's the mandate. That's the true North Star for Red Hill. Share the gospel, share your life. If you do those two things, you're fulfilling the mandate. If you're not very good at those two things, come on in, the water's warm, right? We're gonna try to get better at it together. And then we also have some values which really aren't changing all that much. The first value is take a risk. We're gonna unveil all this and more tonight, but I wanna talk through this specific one because I think it's tied really intimately with sharing the gospel and sharing your life because both those things require risk because every single person who's here today, every single person who is not here today has been burned by somebody, has been burned at a church, has been burned trying to do the right thing, has paid a price for doing the right thing, has paid a price for trusting someone with something. Every single one of us has been wounded in a myriad of ways. And to enter into relationship, to share your life with somebody, to share a mission with somebody, to share the gospel with somebody is gonna require you to take a risk. I, a few years ago, 2016, Sarah and I went to the Southern Baptist Convention that was out in Phoenix. And I got to preach at one of my pastors, one of my old pastor's churches in Phoenix. And we got to play golf together. And we went to TPC Scottsdale, which is like a super beautiful course. I mean, I was, I was out there and I was like, I don't belong here. <laughs> I am, I'm gonna destroy this place. It's gonna be awesome, right? I, I'm, just, I'm just gonna destroy it. And we got to the 15th hole. And the 15th hole is a par five that's this crazy and beautiful hole. Liza, can you throw up the first picture, the, hole, the, the entire hole? Throw that up on the slides there. That's the 15th hole at the, at the uh, stadium course. And... Um, we didn't play from where the pros play because we're not pros and we're also not completely stupid. But uh, I hit a great drive, not in the water, not in the bunkers, not in the rough. Uh, I hit a great drive right down the middle of the fairway. And when we got to the ball, go ahead and go to the next picture, Liza. I, I had like about 230 yards to the hole to an island green surrounded by bunkers. Now, my pastor and I have been playing golf together intermittently since I was 16 years old. And not ever, not once has he beat me. It's one of the great accomplishments of my life because he plays a lot more golf than me. 
and he's extremely competitive and I take great pleasure in trouncing him. So I was dominating him at this point and I was playing really well. And so I pull out like a pitching wedge because I'm gonna lay up because that is crazy. Like that's next level goal. It's an island green. It's got bunkers all around it. I mean, there's nothing but trouble. Almost nothing good can come of that. And so I pull out the wedge and, and Pastor Jackie, he goes, he goes, what are you doing? It's like, I'm laying up, man. I'm trying to win today. Like I wanna, like I'm laying up. He goes, the victory's already locked up, man. I'm not coming back. Like, he was like 20 shots behind me. He's like, I'm not coming back. And he goes, he asked me this, when's the next time you're gonna be here? And I was like, I mean, every now and then, my wife, like I buy her one of those scratch off lottery tickets, you know? So maybe if we hit on one of those, maybe, probably not, probably just gonna pay off our house and you know, buy our church a building or something. But may, yeah, I mean, maybe a golf trip too, maybe. It's like, I don't know. And he goes, all right. He goes, well, when you go home, you wanna tell everybody you laid up or you wanna tell everybody you went for it? And I was like, give me the hybrid. <laughs> give me the hybrid, baby. Cause I'm gonna tell a story when I'm done here. I'm lining up, I'm staring down the barrel of this shot. I'm standing over the ball and I'm like, only God can make something good happen right now because this is not really in my wheelhouse. And I'm telling you what, I stepped up and just absolutely nutted it. Just pure as a day is long, straight at the pin, 20 feet from the hole and made the putt for an eagle. And I mean, and then, I was, yeah, that's right. You can golf clap that. Thank you. Yeah. Because there was no crowd there to do this for me. And my pastor was not happy. He thought I was going to unravel, right? He thought that this was going to be where I unraveled. But I pulled out that hybrid. I stood over the ball, made the best swing of the whole day, hit it dead at the pin, 20 feet from the hole, and then rolled the putt in for the eagle. Two under on one hole. You kidding me? I was like, yeah, let's go, right? Let's go. You can't make an eagle without taking a risk. You just can't. You can't share your life without taking a risk. You can't share the gospel without taking a risk. Calling to the crowd, along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Guys, the, the victory's locked up. The enemy's not coming back. Sin has no victory over me. Death has no victory over me. Inside of our church family, a loved one passed away this week. That life is over. It's done. And when you finish the round, you throw the clubs back in the trunk and you drive home. And nothing about what happened on the course can ever be changed. What do you want to have happen? 
I mean, this, this isn't my church. If it's anybody's, it's Jesus's. If it's anybody else's, it's ours. What do you want to do with your life? I mean, Jesus just asked a question. So let's say you win it all. You become the most famous person on the planet, the richest person on the planet, or the most powerful person on the planet. Or maybe you hit the trifecta and you get all three, and then you die. What was the benefit? What did it profit you to have all of that? What do you want? It's an island green. It's got bunkers all around it. Someday, those of you who are young, I know it doesn't feel like it. Someday you'll be old. Some of you with young kids, someday your kids will be old kids. Some of us who have old kids, someday we'll have grandkids, maybe if we're lucky, blessed. And we'll tell stories about what it was like to be us. Red Hill's seven years old. By God's grace, someday it'll be 70 years old. When I'm 70 years old, now, you know, approaching more rapidly, it seems, than it used to be, I'll tell stories about what we did, what we tried, the fun times, the hard times, the times when we thought that it was gonna fall apart and we weren't gonna make it, the times when we thought this is the beginning of some amazing next leg of the journey where we experience nothing but good times only to discover that even good times have bad times. Today is Sunday, January the 8th, 2023, the year of our Lord. When will you ever be here again in this moment? Where you live, with the friends that you have, the family that you have, when will you ever be in this moment again? Because tomorrow's rapidly approaching. And once we get to tomorrow, all of today is gone, it's done, it's finished. What, it, what are you waiting for? To start living the life that God offers to you. The abundant, overflowing life the spirit-filled life, the, the life of significance is only found on the path of risk. You wanna do anything of significance, you have to take some chances. You have to be willing to fail. In fact, I would say failure is the liturgy, it's the path to be unafraid of failure because you know the game is already locked up. It's already been won. The first requirement of following Jesus is risk. We live in a self-help culture. It's a billion dollar industry, a multi-billion dollar industry. And we should all certainly try to keep improving as humans. Don't follow your yearbook advice that said never change, like keep growing. Keep improving as a human, but also 
let's make sure we have the right definition of improvement. Let's make sure we're aiming at the right definition of success. Because the first requirement of following Jesus is risk. What does he say? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Lose your life. Deny yourself. Don't be ashamed. Over and over and over again, Jesus is telling us the same thing. Push your chips across the table today. Why would you wait till tomorrow to be the person that you could be, to follow him the way that he called you to follow him? Every one of us in the room has a grandma or a pastor or a friend or a mentor that we looked to, that we loved, that we respected, that we admired, that has gone on to be with the Lord. Every one of us. And, and I think about the ones in my life and, and, and I think to myself, I wanna live in a way that honors their legacy that surpasses it because that's what I want my kids and my grandkids and the people that I disciple to do. I want them to live in such a way that they surpass my legacy. And that's what Jesus not only wanted but promised for his disciples. Jesus, God in the flesh, says to his disciples, you're gonna do even greater things than I'm doing and than I've done. That's the legacy that's passed to us. It only comes by taking risk. We value risk taking. I want our church to be a people that's unafraid of failure. Like just not afraid to fail. You know what I'm saying? Like to push it, the chips out, like to just take the, to pull the hybrid out of the bag and go 250 against the wind, island green, bunkers all around. Pow, nothing but the bottom of the cup, baby, right? Just like, we're gonna take the risk. We're gonna be 10 cup. We're gonna make the most legendary 12s in history. We're going to do things and we're going to do them poorly. That's the vision. We're gonna do stuff and we're gonna do it poorly. Sometimes we're gonna try stuff and it's gonna be a giant waste of time and money. And you guys are like, this, I don't think you do understand how vision casting works. <laughs> but what that means is there's room for you. There's not just room for the people who know what they're doing, who are good at what they're doing. There's not just room for the people who are endless winners in life. There's not just room for people who have a proven method of guaranteed success for the church. I like Dwight L. Moody's quote, when talking about evangelism, he was criticized for a lot of things that his church does. And, and one of our overseers, my, uh, my best friend, Rusty, he's appropriated this quote for his church. Feel free to use it as often as you like for our church. When speaking about the things that we do and speaking about the attempts that we make, we just can say, we like the way that we do it wrong better than the way that you don't do it at all. When it comes to taking a risk, we're gonna do it wrong, but we're gonna do it. We're gonna take risks. We're not gonna be the manager who was given the one talent who said, God, I, I knew how shrewd you were. I knew how concerned you were about the things that you gave. So what I did was I took that talent and I put it in the bank and it just, well, in the ground actually, the bank it would have at least gotten like 0.0003% interest. 
that one talent could have been like 1.000003 talents. What a waste, missed opportunity. I took the talent, just buried it in the ground because I, I didn't want to lose it. And Jesus is like, you're wicked. I'm going to take that from you and give it to somebody who has 10. Because to the one who has, more will be given. To the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. God has put some things in our hands. He's put some things in your hands. And we are going to push our chips across the table and do some trying. We're gonna value risk-taking, which means we're gonna value failure. We're gonna be unafraid of failure, unconcerned about looking foolish, unwilling to silently watch our community go to hell. That's who we're gonna be. That's what it means to take a risk. That's why... The true North Star for us must be sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. To be part of our church family will mean at a minimum that, at a minimum that, which means we're gonna need each other. We're gonna need each other. There's gonna be periods where you have doubt. There's gonna be periods where you experience hurt. There's gonna be times when you get frustrated. There's gonna be Seasons where you're wounded. What makes it work is not that we never fail or that we never fail each other. What makes it work is that we never give up forgiving and we never give up trying. That's what makes it work. That's what will make us work. But the moment that we stop forgiving each other, the moment that we stop trying is the moment that we should pack it in and close up shop. What would it profit us to gain 500 people who were cheerleaders for the gospel instead of participants in the gospel? What would it profit us to be the largest church in the whole world but to lose the soul of who God called us and invited us to be? What would it profit us to have millions of dollars in the bank and no vision and no effort to see our community rescued from the path to hell that they are on. What do you want? It's not my church. And you're not living my life. There's this great poem. I'm not gonna read you the whole poem. I'm just gonna give you the heartbeat of it by C.T. Studd. <clears throat> great missionary with an awesome name, C.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for moments like this. We can open up your word. We believe the whole Bible is authored by you but it's really wonderful, especially meaningful and powerful and poignant to get to hear your own words about what you came to do and what you expect from us. And we feel insufficient for the task. Afraid. And probably a little anxious about what in the world that's gonna look like. Help us not to enter the fight with bravado 
with false confidence, with arrogance. Help us to enter the fight in the power of the Spirit. Hearts filled with love, mouths filled with good news. Soft eyes that see compassionately. Help us to fail forward. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In this time of response, we have the Lord's Supper elements available on the table over there. I'll be available to pray with you, as will Josh in the back of the room, if you'd like to talk or pray if something's going on in your life. Remind you that the Lord's Supper is for people who are followers of Jesus. Everybody who's a Christian is welcome at the table. I want to encourage you. This is it. Like, this is it. This is the only today you're going to have. You remind yourself when you feel inadequate, when you feel sinful, when you feel unworthy. As you take the Lord's Supper, you remind yourself, Jesus died for me, for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus has a plan for me, a purpose for me. And in the midst of failure after failure after failure, Jesus loves me. He's ready to meet me right here, right now. In a moment, we'll sing together. We'll keep worshiping together. We'll keep trying together. Taking some risks, having some laughs, and hopefully sticking it out all the way to the end.